0: gorgeous lady how
1: you doing hello beautiful I'm fucking fantastic how the fuck are you I'm doing great other than sweltering in this heat it's brutal the humidity is unreal I hate every second of it <laughs> I'm glad it's summer but no to the humidity
0: my issue is more that I just smell like a farm animal at all times
1: oh yeah and so does everyone else though which is <laughs> terrible but also my smell is less sensible so I guess we're good
0: yeah. So I guess right off the top, you know, we would normally talk about what we've seen and whatnot, but as probably most of you know, SAG has gone on strike, Screen Actors Guild. I am a member of the Screen Actors Guild, and I fully support the actors and the writers who are also on strike. But one of these stipulations as being a member of the Screen Actors Guild is I cannot publicly talk about struck work whether it's mine or someone else's on social media or in a public way. And that includes the podcast, which is a huge fucking bummer because there's a lot of great shit out there. And because of greedy fucks who don't want to pay actors and just want to motion capture us and replace us, we can't talk about the cool shit that's happening. And we can't talk about that on in a few days, two movies that I've been looking forward to for a very long time are dropping and I'm not gonna be able to talk about it. So that sucks. At least not in a public way. It does suck.
1: But good for them for striking. But if you guys
0: want to DM me about it, I can talk about it. I just can't put it in a in a public way. So <laughs> We'll have we'll have to have a little rendezvous so we can discuss. Oh darn. Shucks. <laughs> I have to see you and hang out with you and talk about movies and TV shows. My life is so hard. You're really taking one for the team on this one, Monique. I know. I sometimes you just gotta fall on that grenade, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm that grenade in this case. Yes. There. <laughs> Cuz you're the bomb.com, Amy. Always. Fuck. Oh, okay. I love
1: that. I feel like I'm having flashbacks now from <laughs> trashy reality TV shows where that was a term for girls who were not quite attractive. <laughs> so.
0: Oh god. Oh, well, that's not how I meant it. Oh, of course not. Obviously. No. Because you're no. wonderful and lovely. You're tens across the board.
1: Thank you. Stop it. Totally. your are across the board. Thank you. I
0: mean, you know, that's how we roll,
1: baby. Do you have any exciting updates to your life outside of television and
0: movies? Yeah. One, I mentioned this on a previous episode uh, because things I can't talk about because it's a different union, is live theater. Uh, so I did see a couple of shows, but one of the shows that I'd mentioned on a previous episode was Here Lies Love, which was the Amelda Marcos, David Byrne, uh, Fatboy Slim musical. It's fucking incredible. <laughs> it just sounds
1: like you're like throwing words together that don't belong together in any way, shape or form.
0: Oh, absolutely. Because it's insane. <laughs> it's fucking incredible. It's one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Really? Yes. It's like a total experience because you have in the theater, they had carved out kind of where the orchestra seats are and It's like a quote unquote dance floor. And then they have these platform stages that move throughout the show. And you have one of the ticket options is the dance floor. And I was told, don't skimp, be on the dance floor. And it's fucking amazing. It was amazing. David Byrne was like two feet away from me for like the last like 20 minutes of the show because apparently he goes to every performance, uh, I'm guessing. So it was Jesse Tyler Ferguson. He was there too. Shit. Yeah. Rubbing elbows with the stars. I love it. It was amazing. It was amazing. I highly, highly, highly recommend if you can. If you do go see it, don't sit all the way in the back because I think that's probably a waste of money. Okay. Noted. Because I don't think you'll see a lot of shit that's happening. But it's very possible what I'm going to say can be very controversial. And if I'm wrong, please let me know because I'm not Filipino, obviously. I don't think it is glamorizing of the Marcoses. I think initially it's like this is her story and then this is how like fame and money and power corrupts these people and then shows like the atrocities that they committed because that's just like a character arc as opposed to just starting like these people are pieces of shit. I could be wrong, but I, I don't think it was pro Imelda Marcos like at all. I think it started out like she came from super humble beginnings and then like she became a fucking monster.
1: I was like, that makes sense. Like you're, I feel like you're not going to like demonize
0: a child. Yeah. Or like a 16 year old or whatever. Who's like, yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's, you know, and I think just for like a character arc, it you know, if you start out liking the person be like, oh, they're not that bad. Be like, wait, they're a fucking monster. That's just a more interesting character arc. That's also just based in fact in reality. I thought it was fucking amazing. It was a great fucking show. Okay. I love this. I don't really, it's just not like a regular Broadway musical. And it's a very cool to see cool shit being done. And the thing is this show premiered 10 years ago at the public and they rewrote the ending, I'm guessing, because it's kind of like, you know, fascism, like this is a thing with fascism. It's kind of taking over the world right now. Like right here. Ha. But it's up to the people to like, not tolerate that shit because that's what the people of the Philippines did. They had like a four-day peaceful revolution where they kind of exiled the Marcoses. Except that now their fucking son is the fucking president. So that was all for naught. Whatever. Yep. I fucking hate everything. But the musical—it's it's incredible. It's an amazing, amazing show. It's like—it's <laughs> amazing. Did they talk about her shoe collection? They actually fucking don't. And I think that's fucked up. Really? I'm shocked by that. You know, and I kind of think that maybe it's because that's kind of the only fact almost everyone knows about her. Who knows about her is the the shoe collection. So we don't need to reiterate it. Yeah. We don't need to belabor the point. Okay. But like the setup, because it's like a nightclub, like disco nightclub. So the narrator is like a DJ. It's like so fucking cool. (laughs) It's so fucking cool. It's so cool. That sounds so ridiculous, but so amazing. All right. I- it's, like, it's so great. And he does the, like, the announcement of, like, you know, turn off your phones. And he goes, you're not even going to be able to hear them anyway. Which is totally true. I mean, it was, it was a fucking party. Like, it was amazing. Okay. This sounds really cool. I think you and Johnny might be into it. I might have to check this out. Fuck. I think so. I think you might have to check it out.
1: I say this about all the shows you recommend. And then I, like... <laughs> I'm always like, the city is so far. No, but I I think this one's up there. Okay. I was like, things are so
0: expensive. Just plan like a date night. Okay. I like that. That's cute. Girl, it's amazing. Highly, highly, highly recommend. Also, I went to Fire Island for the first time this weekend to visit some friends. Oh, how was that? One, it was wonderful. Everyone there is wonderful and lovely and all of the things. Two, I didn't realize Fire Island is essentially... The woods. Oh. Uh Uh-huh. But it's wonderful. You hate the woods. I hate the woods. It's like pretty woods, but there's no, like, there's no cars. So everything's on foot or you take, like, water taxis, basically, to the other side of the island. (gasps) Love a water taxi. Which I love. Girl, I love a boat. I will always fuck with a boat all day, every day. Yep. And the, so, but there's no light on the boardwalks, like, through the woods. There's just these white, the edges of it are painted white, so I guess they'll reflect off of the moon. And did I absolutely get lost on my way back from hanging out with my friends at one in the morning in the fucking woods with my battery dying? No! Yes. Was I like, I'm going to be found dead in the fucking... It was like literally a fucking horror movie. I'm like, am I going to be found dead in the fucking woods by a very attractive gay couple fucking on my corpse? Yes. Because apparently there's a part of the woods called the meat rack where people go to fuck. <gasps> girl, girl, it's amazing. My jaw's on the
1: floor and I'm speechless. I mean, if you're, if you're going to have a place in the woods to fuck, that's what you call it.
0: If that's how it was going to go, I was at peace with that. Yeah, I wouldn't be mad about that. But I was like, I really don't want to die this way. And after like 40, because I, I turned my phone on airplane mode. Because basically there's two sides of the island. There's the pines and there's Cherry Grove. And again, it's like walkable. Like you can walk across the whole island. It's like 20, 30 minutes, something like that. And so I was in the pines and my friend was like, okay. Like, you know, I like slept. I was like, I need to go. I need to go. I need to go to where I'm staying. And they're like, okay. And he's like, this way. I was like, no, it's the other way. And he's like, okay. He knew that it wasn't the other way, but he was like, I'm not going to be a dick. And like mansplained to her that it's the other way. But uh, so I got lost for 40 minutes.
1: (laughs) At night. That's not mansplaining. When you know a thing and then I am incorrect, like tell me (laughs) I'm incorrect. Don't let me get
0: lost. Yeah. He was like, I didn't want to be a dick about it. And I'm like, be a dick about it because I was like, gonna die in the woods. My life flashed before my eyes. This is literally your nightmare. Yeah. And I was at like 6% battery because I'm also the (gasps) only person using a fucking flashlight. Everyone else is like, I know where the fuck I'm going. I'm like, this is insane. This is chaos. I don't understand how you people are walking here without any fucking lights in the fucking woods. And then I was like, because there's also like zero reception there on top of everything. Well, yeah, you're in the middle of the woods. Like this is all like a horror movie waiting to happen. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to turn on my, because I had had airplane mode to save the battery. And I was like, I'm going to turn this on. To So, like, turn turn off my airplane mode to see if, like, maybe I can figure out where the fuck this place is. And I was like, girl, you're on the other side. You're on the wrong place. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I found it, and everything was fine.
1: (laughs) I'm glad you survived the woods. (laughs) Me too. That does sound terrifying and awful. I mean,
0: you know, I get myself into precarious situations sometimes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You got yourself out, though. I'm so amazed you still—you haven't, like, sworn off Fire Island forever after this because you— hate the woods
0: it's so beautiful and everyone is so lovely it was such a lovely time it was so lovely and then I ran into a friend of mine there that I haven't seen in like years so that was very cool it was great I've been invited to come back whenever I want so I'm like I don't know I gotta maybe make this shit happen of course you have you know
1: (laughs) who doesn't want you to come visit them like that's
0: lovely thank you Yeah. So that's been my, my super adventurous week. How about yourself?
1: That was a super adventurous week. Mine was less adventurous. I did trek into the city briefly to see you. And I got like some of the most amazing birthday gifts I've ever gotten in my life. And I'm still flabbergasted.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. We saw each other twice. Yes.
1: I came all the way basically just for gifts. I felt bad. I like popped in, had one drink, got all my presents and then had to like peace out and go to work.
0: No, no feeling bad at all. But you got me
1: such amazing gifts. So UFO, like it's probably not. Is it neon neon or is it the LED just looks like neon?
0: Oh, I don't fucking know, girl. You think I understand technology? I don't fucking know. <laughs> Okay. So it's the LED
1: light that looks like a neon light. That's the UFO, which I have not hung up yet, but I am 100% hanging up over my desk. And then she got me like a really nice, really comfortable blanket that is printed with all of the UFO sightings and their respective drawings and their dates. And it's probably the classiest UFO blanket I've ever seen in my life. (laughs)
0: It is. It's very nice. It's very nice. And it's like very heavy and mm-hmm. like... No, that's like, it's like multiple layers of like thread and shit. Thick. Yes. I was going to
1: say it's very thick. It's very well woven. It's beautiful. And you got me a shirt, a crop top because I fucking love a crop top. Who doesn't? That says horror on it, which nailed it. And a fucking four pack of Palomas, which barely lasted a day and a half
0: because <laughs> they're amazing. <laughs> I'm surprised it lasted that long. Yeah. Like, I would have like Chug that shit on the way to work. I mean, they're tiny. (laughs) They're teeny tiny. They need to make like 40s of those. Oh my God. Those would be dangerous, Monique. That's how you die. I mean, I'd be fucked up after one for sure. Yeah.
1: Yes. I'm almost (laughs) fucked up after one of the little ones. Are you kidding me?
0: You're so teeny. (laughs) Okay, I'm not that teeny. You are, though. You're tiny. Thank you. Compa- I'm a fucking monster, like, comparatively. Come on, man. <laughs> you're, like, so, like,
1: statuesque and beautiful. And stop it. I can't. <laughs> I was like, I look
0: like a child next to most people just because I'm so short. Ah, uh, you're a beautiful child. Oh, thank you. That was a weird thing to say. I'm sorry. I it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I knew where the sentiment came from. I liked it. Thank you. <laughs> You weren't being creepy. I didn't. I liked it. Thank you. You can call me a beautiful child any day. Okay. <laughs> but it's like, no, I'm never again. I felt worried about it.
0: No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping that one tucked away
1: forever. It would be weird if I was an, an actual child, but I'm not. So I feel like it's like almost like a honey child thing. Like, oh, honey child, like beautiful child. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So thank you again for all my birthday gifts because they were absolutely amazing. And I fucking love them. Dude, everyone nailed it this year.
0: Thank you. Thank you for coming in and and seeing me and so that I could hang out with you, you and your your beautiful child face.
1: <laughs> Is that gonna be the name of this episode? I think it might have to be Monique.
0: I it might. It might. <laughs> I'm such a psycho. Um. I love you. I'm such a psycho. We're the same psychosis, so it's good. I know we're we're psychic psycho sisters. <laughs> 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 oh
1: yeah, is that what this is giving me now? We're psycho sisters. Okay, all right. Yeah, I can see this. I'm not mad about it. I'm not mad about it. You know, I was like, I would I would feel like any kind of sister with you. I think. I mean, same. Yeah, it's a safe, realistically safe assumption. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, did you did you work any cool shows? I got to see The Struts and Jenny Lewis, both of whom are amazing. Fuck yeah. So those were very cool. It rained a bunch before The Struts, but they still fucking put on a good show. It was like good for them. Was
0: that Sunday? Oh, no. Saturday. Oh, yeah. Saturday rained a ton too. I got, so I I went to Fire Island on Sunday and it was raining so much. Ugh. I hate that. It's like torrential downpour. Yeah. Cannot see your hand in front of your face. It's so bad. Yeah. And my friends were staying on the other side of the island from where I was staying. And I was like, I'll just walk it. And because it wasn't raining that bad. And then in the middle of it, of me walking alone in the woods with no fucking reception. This was all like, it was just my my worst fear. And then there's just like the boardwalk ends. And then you just kind of have to like walk on the ground. And it was just like pools of water and mud. And I was like calling my friend and because there's no reception he wasn't picking up, I'm like, oh my God. But it's okay. It actually, it was, even though it doesn't sound like it, I actually did have a great time while I was there. <laughs> I mean, when I asked you, you said
1: it was wonderful. So I I will take that. It was wonderful. The fact that it was wonderful despite the woods says a lot. It was wonderful. All right. So I have the paranormal story this week. And because you reminded me of it a couple of weeks ago, I binged so much Spooked over the weekend. Fuck yeah! Because I forgot how amazing it is. So, sources, obviously, Spooked podcast, the episode titled Hule Lookout, uh, Mysteries of Hawaii.com, and that's with a dash in between all of those words, DanielsHawaii.com, OnlyInYourState.com, GoHawaii.com, and PBSHawaii.org. Lapaka Kapanai was born and raised in Honolulu, His best friend growing up was a kid named Sean. They met in junior high when one day after school, Lopaka saw two kids knock another student down and take his lunch. Without thinking, Lopaka immediately went after them to defend the boy. The three of them got into an altercation and were sent to the office. The next day, right before class, Lopaka was at the snack machine about to put in a quarter when a hand came over his shoulder and put a quarter in before he could. When he looked over his shoulder, he saw the boy he had defended the day before standing there. He told Lopaka that that was for yesterday. And ever since then, they have been best friends. They would go to the cinema and the mall and even took the same martial arts class together, where they would always get into trouble with their sensei for talking during class. It was a fun friendship, and even when they had disagreements, they would always dissolve into fits of laughter. Lopaka said they were so close, it felt like they were brothers. One day in March, 1980, when Lopaka was 17 and both he and Sean were seniors in high school, They decided to skip class and invited their friend, Ted, to come along with them. Ted picked them up in his dad's car, and three of them went to an old drive-in for burgers and fries. Afterwards, they decided to pick up Ted's girlfriend, Tracy, and drove to Puli Lookout just to hang out. Puli is the Hawaiian word for cliff, and the lookout is a historical landmark that divides the windward and leeward side of the island. It was the site of the Battle of—and again, I'm trying my best on pronunciations, you know this, but I'm— just a nightmare to any word. Let's be real. <laughs> you don't speak Hawaiian. It's fine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I really wish I
1: did. It's a beautiful
0: language. And- I'm certain it's also not called Hawaiian. Uh, and I just fucked that up. But, you know, you know what I mean? I'm trying. We're all trying here. <laughs> <laughs> as far as I know, it is. Fuck, it might not
1: be. And now I feel really bad. That's what they said. They said, like, Hawaiian word for. So I, I, There's probably a technical term. I don't, I literally don't fucking know. I don't know either. And I did the research for
0: the story, Moni. Well, if they said Hawaiian word, I'm going to guess that that they have it correct. Okay, we'll stick with that. Let's stick with that. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm (laughs) just sorry for everything. Blanket sorry. I'm sorry. We're all sorry. Just like apologies across the board. This is like a Josh Gates thing of like, can I get a pardon for everything I've done and everything that I'm going to do? Just... (laughs) Just an apology for this and everything I do in the future. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Let's make that clear. Yes. In case that was... I don't know. You did call me a beautiful child earlier, Monique.
0: <laughs> fuck. <laughs> God
1: damn it. Which now I'm i am just going to run with, and I can't let you live down. Now this is just... I look sus as fuck,
0: guys. This is not great. <laughs> uh, no, I loved it. Guys, it's been a really long fucking day. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh yeah, we're really we're really doing our best. We're really putting up with a lot of uh, mm-hmm. technical internet issues. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it was the site of the Battle of Nuanu, where in 1795, King Kamahamea I won the battle that united Oahu under his rule. The battle claimed hundreds of soldiers' lives, many of whom were forced off of Pule's cliffs. It's located over a thousand feet above the Oahu coastline between mountain peaks surrounded by clouds and is known for its strong and howling winds. As the four of them drove up the highway, all signs of civilization disappeared until there were no more houses, only a dense forest interspersed with waterfalls. As soon as they parked at the lookout, Tracy and Ted immediately started making out, which is obviously super uncomfortable for Lapaca and Sean.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I get it. If you've ever been there, you're like, "Uh, I need to get the fuck out of here right now, thanks. I mean, like... That was just—I was a perpetual third wheel to Christina and her her various no. boyfriends. So not a read. Christina's probably laughing right now hearing it because it's <laughs> true. <laughs> Get it, Christina? No shame. Like, oh, she and she sure did. Yeah,
1: sure did. Every <laughs> week there was a different flavor of the week. <gasps> oh my god, I love Christina even more now. If that's possible, <laughs> not for making you the third wheel, but for that—that that was great. No, I mean, you know.
0: If, if I was in a same situation, I'd be like, fuck, yeah. Yeah, got it. it.
1: I was like, the only thing weird is if you just like stare at them creepily while they're doing it. Like the polite thing is to be like, that's my cue. I'm going to take off now. Thanks. going to fuck off. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So you guys can fuck if you want. There you go. Boom. So they got out of the car and went over to take in the view of the ocean. As they did, they looked to their right and saw a path going further down. It was overgrown with plants and grass, but they decided to check it out. As they headed down, they could hear and feel the wind and could smell the ginger plants all around them. But besides the sound of the wind, Lopaka said it was strangely quiet. They were all by themselves and the wind got stronger the further they went until they couldn't hear the traffic anymore. Then suddenly it went absolutely silent, no noise at all. Lopaka said he could see the wind moving the plants around them, but he could no longer hear it or feel it. Then he heard a girl's voice, calling Sean's name at first they thought it was Ted and that maybe he'd followed them or snuck behind them somehow, but the voice sounded like it was right in front of them and they knew it couldn't possibly have been Ted. They looked at each other like, are you hearing what I'm hearing and realized they were both hearing the same voice calling out for Sean. The voice continued in the same tone for a moment before it quickly started to escalate. Suddenly it was shouting Sean's name in rapid succession, sounding like someone who was absolutely unhinged. Lopaka said all the hairs on his body stood up and he was terrified, like absolutely terrified. When he looked over at Sean, he saw him frozen to the spot with his shoulders hunched up to his ears and his eyes rapidly moving back and forth. Lopaka said it was overwhelming. He didn't know what was going to happen. He wasn't sure if he was going to faint or cry and was terrified that whatever this thing was that was calling Sean's name was going to show up and kill them. All of a sudden, the voice stopped and it was completely silent again. He thought it was over, that it was done, and they could just go home. He was about to tell Sean that they should go when suddenly the voice called out for Lopaka instead. It said his name just once, but Lopaka said hearing it was like a knife passing through him. Except it wasn't pain, it was fear, pure terror. He was standing with his back towards the freeway, facing Sean, when out of nowhere, Sean put his chin down to his chest, his shoulders up, his elbows out, and without warning, tackled him and knocked him to the ground. He felt his head hit the pavement, then watched as Sean took off running. Lopaka was shocked. He couldn't believe his best friend had just left him there, at the mercy of whatever this thing was. He was scraped up and bleeding, but said he was too scared and full of too much adrenaline to feel any pain. All he could think was that he had to get out of there. He said he just had this feeling that if he didn't get out of there, he would die and no one would ever see him again. So he got up and he ran after Sean. He was angry and pissed off and scared. And when he caught up to him, Lapaka grabbed him by the collar of his shirt yanked him backwards, and just started wailing on him. (gasps) Yeah. Girl. Dude, you ran away from me. You fucking abandoned me. I get it. Yeah. He said it wasn't because he tackled him. It was because after everything they'd been through as best friends, he had abandoned him. He had left him and run. And Lopaka, during this episode, like starts to get a little choked up when he says this. Like you can tell he's very upset by it. Sean finally started to fight back, and when Ted saw them, he immediately got out of the car to break it up. Ted pointed at a wall by the lookout and told Lepaka to go sit there and not move. He took Sean to the car, then came back for Lepaka. Ted didn't say anything to him, but was clearly mad and gave him a look that said, you just ruined this day for me. But it didn't just ruin the day. It ruined Lepaka and Sean's friendship too. After that, they completely avoided one another. When they saw each other at school, they would just walk the other way. Lapaca said there were a couple of times that he picked up the phone and started to call him, but he would always just hang up and think, why bother? He knew they were only gonna rehash this thing again, and it was just gonna become another argument. So he decided it wasn't really worth it. One day between classes, Lapaca ran into Ted at the soda machine and started to explain to him what had happened that day. But Ted was a Puerto Rican kid from New York who was raised highly Catholic. So when Lapaca told him what happened, Ted just dismissed him and told him that he and Sean just had a hallucination and accused him of making up this story just to try and scare him. Lepaka said it hurt that Ted didn't believe him, but he didn't press the matter. Sean and Lepaka didn't talk at all after that. Not for their birthdays or during graduation. Nothing. Absolutely no communication whatsoever. For the rest of his senior year, Lepaka said it was hard for him to sleep at night because the second it got dark and quiet that was when it all came back. He had this constant fear that whatever they heard at the Puli Lookout was going to be waiting for him, that it was going to show up at some point to finish the job, but it never happened. After high school, Sean and Lepaka completely lost touch with one another. Lepaka eventually got what the locals called rock fever and just had to get off the island, aka the rock. So he moved away to see the world and meet new people. Over the years, Sean would pop into his head every now and again But he admitted the thought of picking up the phone never crossed his mind. As far as he was concerned, they were done. After some time away, however, Lapaka eventually decided to move back home to Honolulu. And one day in March 2006, 26 years after that day on the lookout, his phone rang and it was Sean. When he heard his voice, Lapaka was like, dude, where have you been? He lied to him and told him that he tried contacting him years ago, but couldn't get in touch with him. But Sean was not calling to chit-chat. He gave Lapaka an address and told him to meet him there tomorrow at noon, then ended the call. Oh, very mysterious. Very mysterious. Which I'd be like, this dude's going to murder me.
0: I, I mean, that's literally what I thought. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, that would literally be my first thought. I was like, at minimum, he's going to beat my
0: ass. Like, best case scenario.
1: I'd be like, I'm not beating this guy without someone as backup in case I don't survive. Absolutely. Lopaka was already familiar with the address. It was the house Sean had lived in when they were kids and he had spent almost as much time there when they'd been friends as he had in his own home. But he said he didn't know what to think. He didn't know if he really wanted to go or if he just wanted to blow it off. But the next day he finds himself getting dressed and getting into his car and driving over to Sean's even though he admitted that he didn't really know why he was going. Maybe he just needed some closure. When he pulled up, he said Sean's house looked exactly the same as it did in 1980, almost as if it was stuck in time. It was a two-story matchbook house, the kind that had Christmas decorations up all year long. I love that. I do
0: too. On a side note, I can't, there was, there's been so much happening today. I completely forgot my most exciting news of the week. Oh my God, tell me. We'll, we'll call this intermission. Intermission. I purchased the 12-foot Home Depot skeleton. <gasps>
1: How did you saying that give me chills? What the fuck is actually wrong with me? <laughs> I got so excited for you.
0: No, it's because you're my fucking psychic sister, my soul sister. And that's why you understand how exciting this is for me. Where the fuck are you going to put it? I don't know. How is that going to fit in your apartment? It's not going to. It doesn't actually fit in my apartment.
1: Hey, I'm sorry. I need I needed to know like the background of the story. How did you get to this
0: point? Was alcohol involved? No, this was actually very well, well thought out. Okay. Uh, Situation. <laughs> I love it. As it should be. So I found out that that Home Depot was restocking it on July 13th online. And then because I was like, well, I don't know if I should like get it because I don't know, like it does, it's not going to fit my apartment. And I was like, maybe I can have it seated. And then I looked at it in an unboxing and it, it's, it's not, it, it doesn't seat. It can't sit. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this. And then i was like, maybe I'll just send it to my parents' place and have it be there and just know it's there. But they're not cool enough to have it, you know, year round. And then I was like, okay, I guess I'm not going to get it. And then a friend of mine was like, no, girl, like, I have a backyard. Just fucking, like, get that shit, and then we'll put it up in my backyard. You can come whatever fuck you want. So then I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. But then it was, like, sold out online. This is, like, at, like, 4 in the morning. And I'm like, okay, it's not meant to be. I'm just going to put, like, you know, the notify me when available. And then, like, a minute later, it was available. So I go, and it's just, like, sold out. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Like So I keep, like, refreshing for, like, 40 some minutes. Oh my God. And at 4.48 in the morning, (laughs) that shit went through, baby. So.
1: (laughs) I fucking love you. The fact that all of us is having it at four in the morning and you're refreshing this like it's a fucking like tickets for a concert or something. If you're trying to get the fucking weightless. This is better than that. This is
0: lifetime. I fucking have this Home Depot skeleton that all I've wanted my whole life. Not my whole life, the last two years since I found out about it. I love this so much.
1: I'm so happy for you. (laughs) Thank you. You deserve the 12-foot Home Depot skeleton. Thank you. I appreciate you. And whoever said you could keep it in their backyard, that's a good friend right there. It was Sam. Sam. Love Sam. Fucking looking out. I love it. Fuck yeah.
0: (laughs) Sorry. I had to derail the story because we were talking about decorations.
1: That's amazing. No, that was was breaking news and I needed it, Monique. Breaking news. Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) I was like, it was perfect timing too. (laughs) Thank you for for indulging me. (laughs) Always. I want to fucking make a trip to see this fucking skeleton when you get it. Absolutely, girl. Yeah. Yes. We're doing that shit. We totally are. Are you going to dress him up?
0: What's the deal? I don't know. I think maybe he's just perfect the way he is. Okay. Yeah. Good. I like that. You know. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) It's really touching. (laughs) Okay. Intermission over. Intermission's over. Back to the story. That was a pee break. You know. We're back. If you need one, there you go. Yeah. So
1: when Sean opened the door, Lapaca said he looked exactly the same as he had when they were kids, just with a few little flecks of gray hair, but that there was no expression on his face. No smile or no reaction at all to seeing his best friend after 26 years. He didn't offer Lapaca a hey brother or a handshake or a hug. He just turned around and walked into the house and out to the patio, turning on the interior lights as he went and Lopaka had no choice but to follow. Sean sat down at the table and gestured for Lopaka to take the chair across from him. At first, neither of them spoke, and the two just sat there in complete silence. So Lopaka found himself looking around the large patio. There used to be a foosball and pool table, and it used to be bright and colorful, but now there was nothing out there except the table and chairs. Finally, after a few moments, Sean broke the silence and asked him if he remembered the time they went to Puli Lookout and heard the voice calling their names. Lapaka said yes, he remembered. Then Sean asked if he remembered him tackling him and knocking him down, and Lapaka again said yes. Sean then told him that after he heard the voice call Lapaka's name, he saw a Hawaiian girl appear behind him. She had long black hair, very pale skin, and no clothes on. Oh, right? Which, like, I don't want that to be my ghost outfit. I would like a cute, a cute dress or, like, romper or something, please at least some yoga
0: pants. Like if I die, like taking a shower, does that, is that what that means? <gasps> no! That's actually my nightmare
1: <laughs> is to be naked <laughs> forever as a ghost. I would not be into that. No, absolutely not. Mm-mm. Give me some like cute lingerie at least or something. Yeah. Yeah. Sean saw her fingers wrap around Lapaka's shoulders and her face slowly emerged from behind him. Her eyes were completely black and as he watched, black forked tongue came out of her mouth. Oh, I know. I know. Also, Lepaka is a fantastic storyteller. So I am not even going to do the story justice because it's so fucking creepy when he tells it. And I got chills in this moment during the episode. Genuinely. My jaw's on the floor and I'm clutching my chest. (sighs) No, I might consider running off the cliff at this point. Like, absolutely not. No, 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 no. Sean said that he immediately knew that the girl was going to take him so he tackled him to push him out of the way then he told the paka that for the entire week after that happened the same girl appeared outside his bedroom window every single night i don't
0: even fucking know like i don't uh,
1: uh, girl no i know the story is the story is insane it got me so good i'm not going to lie
0: also you waited 20 some years to say this right you couldn't have just been like, I need a moment to process and so we can have a Kiki in like a month. I would have flipped the fuck
1: out. I would have immediately pointed and been like, there's some fucking bitch behind you. Like, I am not,
0: about, I saved your life, sir. Like, I mean, literally facts. I'd be like, <laughs> immediately, I'd be like, uh, why are you beating my ass? <laughs> like, there was a fork tongue naked chick behind you. What the fuck? <laughs>
1: Great band name for, for the record. Oh, shit. Yeah, it is a great band name. Right? Mm-hmm. That's metal. Yeah. So every night, she would knock on the glass, and when he opened the curtain, she would point to the hook that held the screen to the windowsill, letting him know that she wanted him to let her inside.
0: Mm-mm. No, thank you. No. mm Find another house,
1: lady. Absolutely not. I'm boarding on my windows tomorrow. I mean, it's interesting that they're, that
0: they're working on, like, vampire rules. That they have to be invited in. Right? Oh, well, girl, wait and see. Oh, shit!
1: <laughs> I was like, this chick has a little more power than vampires, apparently. She does not need an invitation. Oh, shit. Okay, okay. Fuck. Every night, he would shake his head no, but at the end of the week, after refusing to let her in, once again, she took her pointer finger, pressed it against the screen, and ran it across the length. Mm-mm. Oh, girl, no. Again, like, matches lit, gasoline down. We're burning it down. That's what's happening. I literally would have just put up, like, blackout curtains and be like, I don't see you. You're not here. Right? Noise-canceling headphones. Like, Uh -uh. nope, absolutely not. Mm -mm. Thank you. As she did, the hook that was holding the screen to the windowsill slowly came out. Sean then watched as the girl pulled the screen back, opened the window and climbed into his bedroom. He didn't remember anything after she climbed in though. And the next thing he knew, it was morning. He was having his coffee like he normally did, but he could tell that something was very, very off.
0: I have been clutching my chest. You are, she's clutching her pearls right now. (laughs) This entire, I am like some like fork-tongued naked ring chick just comes through my fucking window. I'm out, and I'm like, "Do you have any extra cream with this shit? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> no.
1: Do you like a sweater? I'm actually really cold. I just wanted a like a hoodie or something. No,
0: and then just the next day you're like, I don't know what happened, but I know it was weird.
1: No, I just like blacked out after that, and now I'm drinking coffee. Like, no, get the net padded room. I'm done. It's wrap. Yep, I 100 percent agree. I listened to a lot of Spooked, and this was honestly the one that like kept I kept thinking about that like kept haunting me. It was it was very creepy." It's very creepy. Shit. He couldn't explain it, but something was just different. And Sean told Lepaka that he hadn't been the same since. And when Lepaka heard this, he was actually pissed. He couldn't believe Sean had brought him there just to tell him this ridiculous story. But then Sean asked him something really strange. He glanced around with just his eyes and asked him if he noticed how well lit the patio was. And Lepaka was like, yeah, it's pretty bright. Then Sean pointed behind him to the right corner of the patio and asked if he had noticed the shadow in the corner. Lepaka looked in the direction he was pointing, uh-uh. and in that corner, uh-uh. Uh-uh. there uh-uh. was a uh-uh. shadow. Uh-uh. No. Girl, I know. I told you. This one, like, it got me.
0: And he's been dealing with this for, like, 27 years? Yes! 26 years, girl! Move like, out of the fucking house! I think it follows him, like, wherever he goes. Girl. How do you escape that? I would be, like, bathing and drinking coconut water like it was fucking nobody's I'd be like like I have a sponsorship like a fucking Rihanna what the fuck I love you so much for saying that (laughs) I literally was gonna say ball pit full of
1: coconuts and I would just like roll around in there yes yeah I would just build a house of coconuts like I'm not fucking around I no get out Uh uh-uh no Lapaca said the outline was definitely human but with no features no details in any way and it seemed as though the bright lights in the patio were not penetrating the shadow in any way. He said, quote, that shadow exists there in and of itself, despite or in spite of that light, end quote. When he confirmed that he saw the shadow, Sean said, that's her. Sean then told Lapaka that he, meaning Lapaka, wasn't the same person he was back then at the lookout, but that he was. While Lapaka had changed and matured, Sean hadn't changed since that day, He told him that she'd been with him ever since then. Again, this is 26 years of this fucking bullshit. Mm -mm. I don't know how
0: anyone wouldn't go insane. Is it just one of those things that, like, do you just go into, like, full denial of, like, I'm not seeing the thing? Or do you just, like, accept it? Be like, hey, like, what did you think of the new Gilmore Girls spooky person? You know what (laughs) I mean? Like, what, like, like how, like, Tom Hanks had Wilson. Yes. In Castaway. I'm like, is this, what you do. Yeah. Because, like, it's here. I might as well just, like, engage and just have a kikiki with it. You're like, what do you think we should have for breakfast? Like, yeah. you, want me, you want me to make some pancakes or, like, what's up? Is it an egg day or is it a pancakes day? I don't know. What are you feeling? Yeah. I don't know what my defense mechanisms were if it was this long that this was happening. Right. Well, first of all, I'm telling
1: fucking as many people as I can in case someone knows something. Again, coconut ball pit, throwing it out there. Like, not the worst idea. Like, smudge myself coat of sage like what i'll try fucking anything at this point i'm so fucking get the fuck out of here yeah i'm not just gonna live with this quietly absolutely not i don't care if people think i'm crazy like no yeah then sean dropped his head down and lapaka could tell that he was crying and didn't want him to see and in that moment he realized that sean wasn't making this up lapaka was understandably shocked and asked him why he was telling him this now after all these years but Sean just waved him off like there was nothing more to say and just wanted him to leave. So Lepaca got up, walked to the door,
0: and just left. What a fucking weird encounter. Right? Hey, haven't talked to you in two and a half decades. Here's this thing. You can go now. Thanks. Yeah. Just need to get that off my chest. Not going to say hi. Are you married? Like, how's what job are you doing, you know? Right? Just like, oh, remember when I tackled
1: you? Here's the reason. Super crazy, but you can leave now. Thanks. Mm -hmm. As he was walking to the car, he said there was this huge knot in his stomach, almost like survivor's guilt. He just kept thinking that it should have been him. But he also couldn't help feeling relieved, knowing that in Sean's own words, he didn't abandon him. He actually saved him that day. Then one day, Lepaka got a call from his mom she told him there were some things she wanted to pass on, cultural and spiritual things she wanted to share with him in the traditional Hawaiian way, known as moalejo, which translates to from mouth to ear.
0: Because, as she said, the knowledge must continue. I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, does she know about this, this situation? No. Bitch, I, you know what? I'm sorry. This is something you share when you're, like, five years old. Right? Not like, I'm going to die now, and maybe this might have helped you out in your life, but, like, fuck it. Why not tell you, like, when you're, like, 30?
1: Okay, so I did read an article where I, his mom didn't share with him at a younger age because he it was, like, too young and arrogant to, like, fully appreciate it. So that was the reason why he didn't, like, grow up knowing all of these stories. They're like, they wait until you're mature and then, I guess, pass them on to you.
0: I hear you. But, <laughs> but also, <laughs> I hate all of this, <laughs> you know? And I disagree. That's like being, like... I'm not going to tell my kid not to put the fork in the outlet because they can't understand what electrical current is. So I'm just going to let them fuck around and find out until they're old enough to like get that, and then we can have a conversation about it. No, that's not what you fucking do. This is fair. All right. Because then later on you're like, hey, what's that about? Be like, well, this is actually why X Y Z, and you're like, oh, cool. Oh, thanks for the heads up, mom. Wish I would have known that 26 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. My take. <laughs>
1: you're not wrong. <laughs> you're not wrong. I'll say it now. During one of these lessons around one o'clock in the morning, he was sitting on the floor of his mother's living room. Wait,
0: this, this is happening. Like they can't do this during the daylight hours? During like business
1: hours? I don't know why. I don't know if that's like some sort of like aspect. Part of the thing? Uh, yes, of it. That you need to do this like late at night where it's like very quiet and you're respectful or something. I, I don't know. He specifically mentioned it was one in the morning and I thought that was very odd too.
0: I hope she at least gave him the heads up for that and being like, you know put the coffee on the on the fucking thing. We're going to have an all-nighter. I would hope so.
1: Yeah. So he was sitting on the floor of his mother's living room with her and her cousin Ella. They told him this lesson was about fixing spirits inside of a broken person. And Lepaca said the atmosphere while they were talking about this was "quote unquote very very potent." Since they were on the topic, he decided to tell them what had happened with Sean at the Puli Lookout. He had never shared it with her when he was younger because he wasn't sure she would understand. But the more she taught him about the culture and spirits of Hawaii, the more things opened up and this felt like the right moment to finally talk about it. He told her everything that had happened and everything that Sean had told him. After he finished, there was a brief moment of silence. Then his mother said very matter-of-factly, oh, that's Omomo Mahime. She's the guardian of that path at the lookout. Then she explained that she typically
0: takes a young man as a companion or as a meal? Bitch, you don't think any of that would have been great to pass on when you're like seven. Right? Or even like or even just like when, when it's like, hey mom, I'm gonna be a little bit late for dinner because I'm going to this fucking lookout. Be like you're not like, have a great time. Be like, by the way, this might be a thing.
1: Just like FYI, keep an eye out. BZ dubs. Yeah. Carry some coconuts with you.
0: I don't know. Or whatever the fuck you guys do. Yeah. You know, whatever whatever your 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 spiritual cleansing protection situation is. Yeah. I don't know. I got, you're just, like, letting kids be kids. Who knows? I mean, I feel like this is a very different, you know, the 80s. It was the 80s and no one gave a shit situation than, like... Also possible. Very possible. <sighs> I feel if I had this knowledge, <laughs> I would fucking share it with everybody. I was like, that's fair. That's fair. You know. They would appreciate that, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I would hope. Although, uh, you never
1: know. because could just be like oh, mom with her like spirit stories again. Like, that's not real.
0: Get over it. I mean, without question, for sure. But then you fuck around and you find out, just like you do in real life. Yeah. When, like, you know, at least with me, my mom's very overprotective. And like a lot of the time it was not founded, but sometimes it definitely was. And I was like, oh fuck. <laughs> that was my bad. <laughs> that was correct. She definitely warned me about this. Thanks, Mom. Yeah.
1: So she'll take the young man as a companion or as a meal, but. <sighs> In either scenario, the young man loses his life. And the way that she entices him is by calling out his name. (laughs) Yep. But she will never call out straight to your face. It's always from behind or from a place that she can't be seen. When Lepaka heard that, he immediately got chicken skin, which is what Hawaiians call goosebumps, Mm -hmm. and started to tear up. He said it was very intense, but it was somewhat of a relief to find out there was a name attached to this thing that had happened to them and that it wasn't just some random malevolent force. It was there for a purpose, and he was just relieved that he hadn't caused it. Then he asked her why he survived, and she told him that if it was his time to be taken, he wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. Lepaka said that even though he no longer keeps in touch with Sean, he will forever be grateful towards him for sacrificing a part of himself so that he could go on because that's exactly what their friendship was about. Lopaka Kaponai now leads ghost tours in Honolulu and is affectionately known as the ghost guy. If you're on Oahu and you're interested in taking one of his tours, you can sign up on his website at mysteries-of-hawaii.com. And I will leave you with this. He says, quote, my job is not just to tell ghost stories and scare people, but to clear up the misunderstanding of what this is all about which is really communication, end quote. Which I feel like speaks to your point. There you go. You got to communicate these things. Exactly. Let the people know. Yeah. So Puli Highway is known as one of the most haunted roads in Hawaii, and there have been numerous deaths at the Puli Lookout, from the last stand of Kale Nipu Kule, to falling rocks, strong winds, horse accidents, car crashes, suicides, and even murder. In Lopaka's own words, quote, it's not just one thing that haunts this place. It's many, end quote. And that is the creepiest fuck story of Lupaca experiencing this fucking fork tongue ghost girl. I can't. I mean, I'm traumatized for the rest of my fucking life. Oh, I mean, I would be too. I would have to do something like that as my job because I would be like, I need to tell people this story every single day.
0: Oh, absolutely. It's bananas. I mean, it, yes. And you've left me speechless as you often do on this show. Holy fuck.
1: (laughs) Yes. Well, that was Spooked. Spookily Be Speechless. Um, He's an amazing storyteller. I would happily go on a ghost tour if I was ever in Hawaii for this. Fuck yeah. Yes. Wow. And there were, I did a lot of research on the Puli Lookout, and there were like a lot of other creepy stories. One was about a police officer who literally saw a woman on the side of the road, and then like she just appeared in the backseat of the car and because she like kind of knew what was going on and had heard all the like stories about this place she was just super calm and just like talked to the ghost and was like it's cool like where are you going auntie I just like doing my rounds I have to like go make sure all these gates are closed as part of my job and then just like kept
0: driving with her and then suddenly she was gone those fucking stories kill me right Yeah, there were a lot of creepy ones. Yeah, the like cabs that like pick up, you know, people who disappear and shit. Like they kill me, they kill me. Oh my God, it's one of my favorites. Oh, I mean, same.
1: Yeah, the unsolved mysteries about all of the taxi cab drivers. The tsunami victims. Yes, after the tsunami. So insane. Yes, yes, all of it. Oh my God. (sighs) Yes, so go listen to Spooked. He does a fucking amazing job telling the story. Way better than I did. Obviously, he gives ghost tours for a living. He knows how to tell a story. That was amazing. Thank you so
0: much for that. Of course. Oh, my God. I know. I knew you would like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And
1: I want to start this band with you. This, like, fork-tongue, yeah. Whatever the fuck we
0: said. Fork-tongue, naked ring girls or something? Yes. I'll take it. Anyway, it's all great.
1: (laughs) All right. Now that we've got our uh, spooky, creepy... 26 year haunting out of the way. Do you have a horrifying true crime story for me this week?
0: I have a fun one that will mostly be fun at the very end, but I, I learned about this uh, very recently while researching another story. So that's how it goes. Girl, that's how it goes. So sources Wikipedia.com, Scandals and Cat's True Crime Corner.com, which like all sees love and alliteration. Fuck yeah. NewIdea.com, Collider.com, and Chicagoology.com, and this is the story of Beulah Annan. Beulah May Sheriff was born on November eighteenth, eighteen ninety nine, in Owensboro, Kentucky, to May and John R. Sheriff, a prosperous Kentucky farmer. As a teen, Beulah had a habit of getting into trouble, but instead of bailing her out, her father refused to help her out of her jams, making her live with the consequences of her actions. As a result, she married young to get out of her house. Some sources cite her as getting married at the age of 17, while others list her as getting married as early as the age of 15, which (gasps) fucking yikes. Girl. Oh, my God. I understand it's a different time, but like— It's like my great-grandma. I can't. That's your great-grandma? I feel like she got married at 16. Yeah. Oh, my God. Pretty close, yeah. And, you know, they were like popping out kids like immediately, too. Oh, yeah. You're so baby. Like, that they have, like, 10 kids by the time they're, like, 26 and shit. And you're like, oh, my God. Like. How? Why? Ah, No. Oh, thank God. That is not my life. Right? <laughs> thank you. I mean, if it's your life and you love it, like, great. But I, I, that is a horror show for me. Yeah. I'm glad times have changed. Girl. Yes. She married a newspaper linotype operator named Perry Stevens and gave birth to a son. But. Beulah was bored with being a housewife and motherhood just wasn't her jam. She was young and beautiful and had what Perry called, quote, too many friends, end quote. Which I think it's a euphemism and a very strong implication that Beulah was fucking around on Perry. I think that that's what that means. Okay. Because there was like an incident that was written that she was like in a car with a dude and they got into a car accident. And that kind of like destroyed their relationship. And I'm like... I, I can't imagine that it was just that she was in a car with a dude. Like, she had to be giving him, like, a handy or something. Like, something had to. So, but it's just, like, you know what I mean? little roadhead, you know, happens. A little road head, and then, and then yeah. they get into the car accident, and it's like, ah, you know, fuck. <laughs> <but>, um, <laughs> I didn't even mean it like that. But, you know, also that. <laughs> it was like, his pants were down by the pedals. Like, eh, we have some questions for you. I got it. You, yeah. So I, I'm speculating wildly, but I think I think it's an accurate speculation. That seems like a fair assumption. Yeah, thank you. So it was a long before she divorced her husband, leaving him and their son, and took off for Louisville, never to make contact with either of them again. So Beulah's mother of the year. While in Louisville, she met Albert Annan, a car mechanic 10 years her senior. Albert's family had a bit of a reputation in Owensboro and Louisville, as his brother, Alfred, was a bandit, And a member of the Irvin Anderson gang. The Irvin Anderson gang was a bunch of young men, the oldest being 20 years old, who started off stealing cars, but escalated to highway robbery and the murder of a police officer. Damn. Girl. That's a hell of an escalation. Okay. Girl. (laughs) I know. And I also understand that it was like, no, it's not even the fucking crash. The crash hasn't happened yet for like another nine years. So I don't know what the fuck. People are just poor and just... Doing some wild shit. And I get it, you know, like, temp not a desperate man, right? Shakespeare. But Albert's brother Alfred was killed in a restaurant holdup in Cincinnati. But Beulah wasn't too jazzed with being associated with the fallout from the Anderson gang. So she agreed to marry Albert if they moved to Chicago, which they did. On March 29th, 1920, the couple got married after their move to the Windy City. Albert found a job in a garage making $60 a week, which would be about $915 today. He worked 10 to 14 hours a day to pay for the nice things that his new bride wanted, like the furniture that Beulah had bought to furnish their apartment. But Beulah was bored again, so she convinced Al to let her get a part-time job as a bookkeeper for tenants' model laundry. There, she met Harry Colstead. Harry was a handsome ex-con who had done time for rape. Yikes. Oh my God, okay. Like five years. It was called like a statutory crime and like, like, aka fucking rape. Yeah. Mm hmm. And he did like five years, which I'm like, I can't imagine that he's getting more time for that then than now. Yeah. For that crime. Because if he did, like, I'm assuming that this was like a in and out prison for five years. I don't think it was one straight shot. I don't know. I'm speculating wildly. Either way, yikes. But not a good luck. It's not a great luck. No. He was a laundry wagon driver and he met Beulah because he would go to see the bookkeeper to pay his own bill. Immediately, the two were smitten kitten with each other and began an affair. On Thursday, April 3rd, 1924, Al left for work and Harry came over a little afternoon, as he had done many times before. Beulah gave Harry a dollar to get some more alcohol, and a short while later, he returned with two quarts of wine. They went to the bedroom that she shared with her husband, Al, and while Beulah relished in the attention her handsome lover bestowed on her, it seemed like Beulah was a bit of a shit starter and she wanted to pick a fight. Harry had made promises. He promised to take her to lavish places, spoiling her and throwing his money around. But Harry never did any of that. Not only that, Harry never seemed to have any money to spend on her, seeing as how it was always Beulah who was paying for Harry's liquor run. And Beulah was over it. She wanted him to step up to the plate. So as the two drank, she came up with the idea that she should try to make Harry jealous. So she made up a fake boyfriend named Johnny and boasted about how he'd come around to call on her. And the ploy worked. A drunken Harry demanded to know if they'd slept together, calling her a quote-unquote vile name. What that was, I don't know. And shouting as he did so. An equally drunk Beulah shouted back. Their fight escalated quickly. They drank some more. And Beulah called him a four-flusher which in poker is when someone has four cards of the same suit instead of the five needed for a flush. So if you call someone a four-flusher, you're saying that person is a show-off who makes empty boasts and welches on their word. Okay, I love a creative insult. I mean, yeah. It's like you're a foolish person. You talk all this shit. You don't do anything. You're a four-flusher. Four-flusher. I'm into it. I am into it. I'll add it to the lexicon of like dead language that I still... (laughs) dead sayings that I use. (laughs) (coughs) It's like, oh, I was actually, (laughs) I was talking last night with someone about how I'm old and I don't understand like the, the things that the kids say today, like how someone said gas, like how was it? It was gas. And we're like, we don't know what that means. And like the cap and no cap, one of those means to tell the truth and the other one doesn't. So instead of looking it up, we just decided that no cap means to tell the truth. <laughs> You're like I've just, I've made my own decision on this. Yeah. Yeah. I prefer making making it up instead. All language is made up. That's very true. No cap.
1: <laughs> I had heard gas before, but not the cap thing. So I'm equally as. Well,
0: I've heard about like gassing someone up. Yeah. But not how? How was how was the movie? It was gas. I don't know what that means. I'm assuming that's good. <laughs> that's what I'm assuming. <laughs> Sounds positive. Yeah. Context clues. That's what I would assume. But yeah, I guess I'll just add four flusher to the the lexicon of words no one uses. While everyone <laughs> while everyone else is being like Stan and gas, no cap. You know,
1: we're bringing the old timey terms back.
0: Yeah, let's bring back the old timey terms. Four flusher. I love it. So. In addition to calling him a four-flesher, she went on to taunt him about being a jailbird. Oh. Basically, that he was like a fucking con who was was pinched for rape, which like I wouldn't do, girl. I don't think that's the move. Yeah, don't
1: antagonize the rapist.
0: Like, you know, like... Just tip for life.
1: This is the blackmailing the murderer thing all over again. Like, do not <laughs>
0: blackmail yeah. somebody you think has murdered somebody. Like, they're going to murder you. Like, not victim blaming, but don't do That's not a great life choice. That's not the move. <laughs> just a friendly piece of advice. Like, do whatever you're going to do. Just throwing it out there. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So Harry is clearly like, fuck this, and tells her that he's leaving and that the affair is over. So Beulah grabs a gun out of Al's underwear drawer and shoots Harry in the back. Now, there's conflicting reasons slash motivations as to why Beulah did this next thing. Some say that she panicked. Others, like me, just think that she's a fucking psychopath. So she shoots her lover in the back, puts on her favorite record, a Foxtrot song called Hula Loo, and dances to it, and place it on repeat for over two hours while her lover lay dying on the floor of her apartment. Okay, no, this is sadistic. This is fucked up. I think it's, yeah, like, because it's like, well, you know, she panicked. Like, what else is she supposed to do? Literally anything else.
1: Not dance over his dying body? (laughs) Like Anything else? I don't know.
0: You know, I I love me a bop, but I'm not going to put, like, shake it off on... After I've shot someone, you know, like, what the fuck? It's like,
1: controversial opinion, I know. But yeah, agreed.
0: You know, just like, they're just flying left and right today. At 4.10 p.m., two hours after she had shot Harry, Beulah called the laundry where they both worked asking where Harry was, saying she hadn't seen him all day and wondered where he was, which doesn't make any fucking sense to me because if she had the day off, so I'm like, why would... Why would you have seen Harry unless like everyone knew that she was having an affair, which is possible. I don't think Beulah's exactly discreet. So drunk and manic, she kept dancing. Then she focused on the situation and maybe realizing what she had done or maybe realizing that she was just kind of fucked, began to cry. At 10 to 5, Beulah called her husband at the garage and said, quote, Come home. I've shot a man. He's been trying to make love to me. End quote. This bitch. Beulah. This, (laughs) bitch, Bula, girl. Oh my God. This is not the move. This is not cute. I
1: can't even imagine getting this call at work and being like, are you for fucking real? Like I, uh, I just want to go home and have some dinner and like relax. I don't want to have to
0: deal with a dead body right now. You know that like he gets calls of like wild shit all the time. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Like maybe this is the first part, but it's like, I'm literally working 14 hours because there's not like fucking labor unions yet to pay for your shit. Could you please leave me in fucking peace, please? (laughs) Support the unions, by the way. It's
1: like, I would like to come home to a nice home-cooked meal and not your dead lover.
0: Please and thank you. Not a fucking dead body. But Al rushed home where he found Beulah sobbing and hysterical. She told him her story. A man came in and tried to rape her, but she fought him off and shot him with a gun. Girl. <laughs> Bullshit. <laughs> exactly. I had a little a little chuckle. And like, he's like, literally, and to use the parlance of our times, he's he's a total cuck. Like, I, yeah. in every way. If that wasn't abundantly clear, he's a total cuck. <sighs> like, bless his heart. So, Al called the police, and when officers arrived at their small apartment at 817 East 46th Street, Al hands over the gun immediately and takes the fall for Beulah, saying that He was the one who had actually killed Harry because he was attacking his wife, saying, quote, I come and found this guy going after her. It was me that shot him, end quote. Dr. Clifford Oliver arrived at the scene at 6.20 and despite having been shot around two o'clock, said Harry had only been dead for about half an hour. What? Girl, meaning that for like four hours while Beulah's just fucking (laughs) foxtrotting... This dude is slowly <laughs> fucking dying. Uh, she's doing the Charleston over this guy. Son of a bitch. Yeah. Like, uh, Beulah, my God. But the cops were looking at the way that the body was lying and weren't buying Al's story. So they ask a drunken Beulah what happened. And at first, she confesses, sort of. She tells the officers that she barely knew Harry and that he came to the apartment and had, quote, tried to make love, end quote, to her. She refused, and then he kept coming at her, and she had no choice but to grab the gun from Al's underwear drawer and shoot. And the cops are like, cool, cool, cool. Um, why was he shot in the back then? (laughs) If he was coming right at you, yeah. (laughs) You know? Fair question. Uh Uh-huh. And at this gotcha question... Beulah collapsed into a dead faint. Oh, get the fuck out of here. Girl, get the fuck ready. Get the fuck ready for all of this because this is insane. When Beulah came to, Assistant State's Attorney Roy C. Woods was in her apartment. And this was a bit of a relief as she knew him. He was a customer at the laundry that she worked at. He calmed the woman down, telling her not to be afraid that she'd shot an intruder. And because apparently Beulah's like really fucking bad at this, she asks the assistant state's attorney if they could make the murder look like an accident. <laughs> <laughs> the balls on this chick, like what? And what is is like, excuse me, fucking what? What was that? Ma'am? Beulah? What? I mean, I guess that's a fair question. <laughs> but
1: also, no, we can't do that. Thanks. You don't say that out loud, girl. Like,
0: could you just, like, do me a solid if you wouldn't mind? Thanks. Hey, you know, (sighs) girl. Albert Allen, the police stenographer, was also on the scene recording everything, and he also caught what Beulah said. He took it upon himself to ask her why she had shot Harry Calstead. Through sobs, Beulah replied that she didn't know why she had done it, and with that, she was arrested and taken down to the station. While down at the station, Beulah had sobered up and composed herself some, but still wide-eyed and teary, Beulah repeated her story again, but this time for the reporters who were waiting with bated breath to hear from Chicago's latest murderess. Because apparently, women be wildin' in Chicago at this time. they just be murdering, like, boyfriends and husbands like it's fucking nobody's business. I was like, they made a whole play about it, yeah. Girl. Yep. Among the reporters present was Maureen Watkins of the Chicago Tribune the paper had sent her to cover the case and offer a quote-unquote woman's perspective, which, okay, she killed her boyfriend. I don't understand what the perspective is on it. My uterus and my vagina are telling me that she (laughs) killed her boyfriend. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) More tonight at 11. (laughs) Oh, man. And while all the male reporters Bought the teary-eyed beauty story. Maureen thought that Beulah was full of shit.
1: I was going to say, I feel like she's going to be harder on her because
0: I'd be like, mm. Because she fucking was. Yeah, bullshit. And because she knew what the fuck time it was. Yeah. Call her Big Ben. She knew what fucking time it was. No sympathy for you, Beulah. No, exactly. No. The police began their interrogation. And the thing is, Beulah's original story didn't add up. Why were there empty wine bottles and empty glasses in the apartment? If Harry was attacking her, why was he shot in the back? Why did she wait four fucking hours to call the police? Backed into a corner, Beulah came clean. She said, quote, You're right. I haven't been telling the truth. I'd been fooling around with Harry for two months. This morning, as soon as my husband left for work, Harry called me up. I told him I wouldn't be home, but he came over anyway. We sat in the flat for quite a time drinking. Then I said, in a joking way, that I was going to quit him. He said he was through with me and began to put on his coat. When I saw that he meant what he said, my mind was in a whirl and I shot him. Then I started playing the record. I was nervous, you see. End quote. Girl. I mean, okay. Sure. For the record, this is like the most truthful she's going to be in this entire story. I'm I'm sure. And it's still all bullshit. So, yeah. Police Captain Edward Murnane as well as assistant state's attorneys, Bernd Cranston and William McLaughlin were in attendance for this confession. And they were pleased as punch. Beulah Annan, quote, had all but put the noose around her neck, end quote. Prosecutors were determined to crush the notion that a jury couldn't convict a beautiful woman, but they were definitely gonna be fighting an uphill battle. While at the time, 48 women had been charged with murder in Chicago, only 11 had been convicted and none of them had been hanged. So this was definitely the time and place to be a woman and fucking murder someone. Just saying.
1: Yeah. All the cops are like buying her
0: like melodramatic crying bullshit. Like, ugh. Yes. Well, because also this is like women are like too like weak and soft and delicate to murder someone. No, they're not. (laughs) No, they're fucking not. Spoiler, they're not.
1: I was like, hell hath no fury, I think. Is this very common saying at this point?
0: Yeah, exactly. Defense attorneys William Scott Stewart and his law partner, WW O'Brien, took up Bula's case for a fee. The incarcerated Bula obviously couldn't pay, so she turned to her ever loyal husband, Al, who was determined to save his wife's life despite her adultery. He quickly began trying to raise money to cover Bula's legal expenses. He even called Bula's father, but just like in her rambunctious teen years, he refused to help out. As far as he was concerned, Beulah had gotten into enough trouble over her lifetime for his liking. She got herself into this mess, and it was her job to get herself out. Not only that, he told his murderous daughter not to worry, that she was far too pretty to be hanged. Which, thanks, Dad? Yeah. You know? Beulah's mother, on the other hand, rushed to Beulah's side when she heard of her arrest and went back to Owensboro, Kentucky to try and gain some financial support for the trial. While Al worked tirelessly to raise funds to save his wife's life, Beulah was just having a grand old time. She loved all the media attention. She was no longer the sobbing mess officers had first brought into the Hyde Park Police Station. She'd washed up and changed clothes. She looked downright glamorous. At the coroner's inquest, Roy Woods laid out every piece of evidence that they had in the case, stating that Harry said that he was done with Beulah and that Beulah would not let him walk out, so she grabbed the gun from the Bureau in the bedroom and shot him. At this point, Beulah's attorney, W.W. W. O'Brien, interrupted, saying, quote, they both went for the gun, end quote. He and Stewart presented Beulah as a, quote-unquote, virtuous working girl, and then they dredged up the time that Harry had spent in prison in Minnesota. The prosecution refuted this claim, saying that almost three hours had passed from the time of the shooting when Beulah called Al to tell him what had happened. And given that Harry Colstead had been dead only half an hour when the doctor arrived at their apartment at 620, that meant that Beulah had watched her lover suffer a slow and painful death. Yeah. While
1: well, fucking throwing her own personal rager. Uh, you're like, girl.
0: I can't. Outside for the reporters, O'Brien repeated the they both reached for the gun story, but that Beulah got there first. Harry had tried to get his coat and hat, but never reached them. Why didn't he reach them? A reporter asked. Beulah responded, darn good reason. I shot him. And so the media circus began with Beulah's defense attorneys pulling the strings and manipulating the media at every turn in favor of their client. The inquest concluded that Beulah was responsible for Harry's death. The case would then go to a grand jury before certainly going to trial. After the inquest's conclusion, Beulah was moved to the infamous Cook County Jail, taking up residence on Murderous Row. There she met Belva Gertner. A three-time divorcee and former showgirl who, a month prior to Harry Kalstead's murder, had been arrested because Walter Law, a married father of one with whom she had been having an affair, was found dead, sprawled out in the front seat of her car with a bottle of gin and a gun beside him. Belva, who was found in her Chicago apartment soon after, with blood-soaked clothes on the floor, was arrested for his murder. When authorities interrogated her as to what happened, she told police that she was so drunk she didn't remember anything between the pair leaving the cabaret club together and hearing a loud explosion followed by Walter's body falling on top of her. Bull, fucking shit. Of course. Also, like, I'm not giving any props. I'm not. Don't murder people. Shouldn't have to be said, but apparently, since we have this podcast, it does need to be said. We're a hundred-some episodes in, and a lot of people didn't get that memo. But if your entire life you're told how weak and like pathetic you are because you can't do anything because you're a woman, I would play the fuck out of this angle. I would play it. As, I, I don't know. I don't even know what a gun is. What? Like I would, I would play the fuck out of that. And these women are doing it. Yeah. When Belva was interviewed by Maureen Watkins for the Chicago Tribune, Belva explained she couldn't possibly have committed the murder of which she was accused, saying, quote, no woman can love a man enough to kill him. They aren't worth it. Because there are always plenty more. Okay. Work, bitch. Sorry, but work. I mean, that's a Savage. Fucking- <laughs> <laughs> I fucking love that. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I mean, girl. Walter was just a kid, 29 and I'm 38. Why should I have worried whether he loved me or whether he left me? Gin and guns, either one is bad enough. But together... They get you in a dickens of a mess, don't they? End quote. We need to bring back this, like, vernacular. Like, people need to talk like this again. I fucking love it. Oh, (laughs) absolutely. Absolutely. We're in a four-flusher in dickens, baby. Yes, yes. (laughs) So, probably not surprising, Beulah and Belva became fast friends on Murderous Row and quickly realized the importance of playing up their femininity for the press as well as their respective juries. Understanding the necessity of looking good, the two women opened up a kind of fashion school for female criminals at the Cook County Jail. They cut each other's hair in the latest styles, and they discussed how to wear cosmetics and even gave themselves and each other manicures.
1: I hate saying this is adorable, but this is kind of adorable. (laughs) It's fucked up, but I kind of like
0: respect it. Yeah, I was like, get a lot of downtime. Like you got to do something. Okay. And you're like- you know, I mean, to this day, it's a, it's a very important, like, how you look, what you wear, when you go to court. Like, all those things really fucking matter. Like, the fucking, the, the pastel sweaters of the Menendez brothers. Like, everyone fucking remembers that shit that's been talked about forever. While in her cell, Beulah would give interviews and have her picture taken, prettily crying about how sorry she is and how much she misses her seven-year-old son. You know, the one she abandoned and blamed all of her problems on her first marriage to Perry Stevens, claiming she rushed into the marriage because of her parents and, quote-unquote, before she knew her own mind. Thousands of people in hundreds of cities read her story and saw her picture in the newspapers, and Beulah became an overnight celebrity, with the Chicago Papers dubbing Beulah, quote, Chicago's most gorgeous slayer, end quote, and the prettiest woman ever charged with murder in Chicago. End quote. And if you think only the men felt this way, Maureen Watkins wrote that women around Chicago, quote, wanted to be like Beulah or Belva, end quote. Wow. Okay. I mean, notoriety, like, gets a vibe. Yeah. Beulah received armfuls of fan mail, flowers and candy, marriage proposals, and even a steak dinner from a famous restaurant delivered to her in. Fucking jail. What, girl? I can't. Like, yeah, I'll just take it right here, next to next to the toilet and the toilet wine that I've made. Yeah, I'll just take it right here. Thank you. And because of all of this fuckery, she began to think of herself as a heroine. And during this time, the grand jury charges Beulah with murder, and Assistant State's Attorneys Bert Cronson, Roy Wood, and Willie McLaughlin make it very clear that they want an early trial, and they make it known that they're seeking the death penalty. All the while, Beulah's attorney soothed her with promises of acquittal. Because again, of the 48 women who had been charged with murder, 37 of them had been acquitted. And most importantly, none of the ones found guilty had ever been hanged. But if she was going to be acquitted, they were going to have to work on her story. So for the third time, Beulah's account of the events that day changed. (laughs) My head is in my hands. I can't. Yes. On the advice of her counsel, Harry wasn't leaving her at all, and the gun wasn't kept in the bureau. Harry was still upset with her over the fight, and he came towards her. The gun was in plain sight. They both reached for the gun, but Beulah got to it first. O'Brien made it clear that Beulah would be pleading self-defense, reiterating that Harry Calstead had spent five years in prison for assaulting a woman, so he wouldn't have had a second thought about assaulting another one. And the papers loved this storyline— And Beulah made for a sympathetic interviewee. She was repentant for her actions. She was simply another woman who had been led astray by jazz and liquor. She was a fallen woman, but she could be saved. But Maureen Watkins saw right through O'Brien and Beulah's bullshit narrative and in her writings for the Tribune, called out Beulah Annan for exactly what she was, an attention-starved drunk who had murdered a man rather than let him leave her. But... The hilarious thing is, Beulah didn't even clock the read as she was too busy reveling in all the attention she was getting in the press. Because, you know what they say, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. But before Beulah's trial could even begin, the paper's interest in Chicago's most gorgeous slayer was waning. There was a new girl gunner in town who had taken up all of their attention, and Beulah was having none of it. So she changed her story again what (laughs) how are you even allowed to okay
1: like testify at this point it's just like perjury on perjury Uh, girl i literally don't
0: know oh my god well granted, this is all like uh, well not all of it but a lot of it is just like through the papers because she's like literally having them come to her jail cell to interview her because you could do that back then this is ridiculous and take pictures of her and shit harry was harassing her because he found out that she was having a baby that's right Beulah was with child and back in the headlines, exactly where she wanted to be. And while Beulah was awaiting trial, Belva's trial began. And she maintained her story, complaining that her memory was still too fuzzy to know who killed Walter Law on March 12th, but that religious faith and belief in her own innocence would sustain her during trial. Within two weeks, Belva was acquitted of all charges by an all-male jury. Because I believe this is like nine years before women are allowed to be on a jury. Because again, we're just so weak and fragile and dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Men can't be manipulated at all. (laughs) I was like, clearly. (laughs) Beulah's trial began on Thursday, May 22nd, 1924. And all eyes in the courtroom were on the mother to be, with the papers describing her as a, quote, modest little housewife, end quote, in appearance. While all the papers were mesmerized by Beulah's demure appearance, Maureen Watkins kept to her cynical guns, seemingly being the only reporter at the trial who remembered the fact that Beulah had fucking murdered someone. Literally everyone else is just commenting on like her fashion and shit. And the defense was facing an uphill battle. For starters, the judge allowed Beulah's first drunken, sobbing confession to be admitted into evidence. A witness brought up how Beulah had asked Woods to frame the murder as an accident, and the prosecution brought up how she called the laundry at 410, asking where Harry was instead of calling a doctor for help while he lay dying on her floor. But this was not the defense's first rodeo. They engaged in an emotional and theatrical opening statement, with O'Brien working his magic as he spun their version of events for the jury, with Beulah playing along, periodically dabbing tears from her eyes for the jury and press. Then, in the ultimate Hail Mary move and before a packed courthouse, Beulah Annan took the stand in her own defense on Saturday, May 24th, 1924. She was the picture-perfect image of an innocent victim. Maureen Watkins described her as, quote, under the glare of motion picture lights, end quote. Beulah took the stand. In another new dress, as she had worn a new dress every day of the trial, this one was a Navy twill tied with a side-like child bow, and with a necklace of crystal and jet. Of Beulah taking the stand, Watkins wrote, quote, she made her debut as an actress, end quote. Which, savagery. Savage. And also, like, work. But also true. Like, this is the role of a lifetime for her. It's totally true. She's the only one saying that's fucking true. Yeah. Beulah launched into her tale. She told the courtroom that Harry had showed up drunk, he was begging for money, so she gave him a dollar to make him go away. But he came back around, too, with wine. Then a struggle ensued. She wanted him to leave, but he wouldn't go. They both reached for the gun, but she got to it first. She pushed at his right shoulder with her left hand, and that's how she ended up shooting him in the back, she said. And she truly believed that he'd meant to do her harm. Before all that transpired, she had been begging Harry to leave. She informed him that she was pregnant— And that's how the whole struggle for the gun started, she said. Then she lost all reason. The call to the laundry was a wrong number, dialed out of habit, perhaps. Girl. Bitch. What? Beulah. (sighs) Girl. It's just like rolling my eyes nonstop. I mean. She finally managed to get a hold of her husband at the garage. He arrived, followed by the police. Then they took her to the Hyde Park Police Station for questioning. On cross-examination, the prosecution had hoped to catch Beulah in one of her many lies and fabrications, starting with the fact that the story she'd told the jury was not the version of events she'd first confessed to. They desperately tried to get Beulah to admit, as she'd done a month earlier, that she had been fooling around with Harry prior to shooting him. But Beulah never wavered or even got flustered and stuck to her new version of events. In closing arguments, prosecutors went over all the evidence, again with the jury, attempting to destroy Beulah's new reputation, and were confident that they had had the jury on their side. The defense, however, razzle-dazzled them with their magic and narrative of what had transpired. The police had bullied her, which is why she lied, and gave them a false confession. This poor, frail housewife was shocked and distraught, and these big, bad policemen took advantage of that at 8:30 p.m. that saturday night the jury was sent out for deliberation at 10:20 p.m. less than 2 hours later the all-male jury had reached its verdict not guilty shocker yeah i mean you know which might not have come as such a shock to the prosecution if they had taken a second to take the temperature of how people were viewing the case outside of the courtroom for instance Bookies offered $1,000 on a 10-cent bet if Beulah Annan was found guilty, but no one would take the bet.
1: Yeah, no fucking shit. Uh, you could bet on criminal trial outcomes? Like, what?
0: I, oh, I'm certain that that's a thing. I'm certain people had bets. Like, I'm sure Vegas had, like, OJ bets and shit. I'm certain they did. You just blew my mind. This has never, this never occurred to me. Vegas fucking has bets on, on celebrities who are dying. That's true. There's like bets on like, if, if this celebrity dies, then you get a fuck ton of money. We're trash people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> just as, as a society, we're just trash. Yeah. Abila cried tears of joy and relief and told reporters that she vowed to be a dear, devoted wife to Al. But by Monday afternoon, she appeared in the newspaper office with a divorce lawyer in tow. So that literally lasted like two days. <laughs> <laughs> this woman is ridiculous. And Al, like they, they, there's a whole thing about him going on the stand and he just basically like sat in silence in the, like on the stand. It was like, I don't like, it was just the most pathetic cuck situation ever. He was literally willing to take the fall for her.
1: He was going to go to jail for murder for this bitch who left him immediately.
0: Yeah. In 1927, after her divorce from Annan had been finalized, she married a 26-year-old boxer named Edward Harleb. But the marriage lasted just three months as she claimed that he had been cruel to her and she filed for divorce. In the divorce settlement, Harleb paid her $5,000 or over $87,000 in today's money. What? Can I fucking marry this guy for three months? Right? Holy fuck. That's a great return on investment. Girl. Yeah. After her divorce from Harleb. Beulah returned to Chicago and moved in with her mother. Beulah got involved with and subsequently engaged to a man named Abe Marcus on January 1st, 1928. But shortly thereafter, she became ill. For seemingly the first time in her life, wanting out of the spotlight, she checked into Chicago's Fresh Air Hospital as Dorothy Stevens. And on March 14, 1928, the prettiest woman ever charged with murder in Chicago, Beulah Annan, died of tuberculosis. She was 28 years old. In attendance at Beulah's funeral were Perry Stevens, her first husband and father of her son, Albert Annan, her husband during the trial, who was repeatedly called the boob by the prosecution, which, fucking savage. (laughs) Oh my God. Edward Harlib, her third husband, who was allegedly cruel to her, and Marcus, her fiance, because apparently once he fell in love with Beulah, you were always in love with her.
1: Does chick have like a magical
0: pussy or something? Like what is going on? Girl, I mean that's all I thought about. I'm like, what wild shit is she doing? Right? Sexually, that these men are like <laughs> you know what this reminded me of when I was working on it? The most wonderful phrase that Amy taught me like two years ago, she knows her way around a dick. Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot I had said that. Oh my god, it was like, I mean. Yeah guy pays you the equivalent of $87,000 and he goes to your funeral? That's insane. And again, was willing to take the fall for murder. That's actually insane. Yeah. I can't. Maureen Watkins, grossed out by the fact that both Beulah and Belva had gotten away with murder because they were pretty and fashionable, left the newspaper after only six months and moved to New York City to study playwriting. And if at any point in this story, you've been like, hey, this story sounds really familiar. Well, Watkins wrote her first play, Chicago, or Play Ball, about two death row murderesses, one a showgirl named Velma Kelly, modeled after Belva, and an aspiring celebrity named Roxy Hart, inspired by Beulah, who develop a fierce rivalry while competing for publicity, celebrity, and a sleazy lawyer named Billy Flynn's attention. It premiered in New York in December of 1926 and ran in Chicago in September of 1927. Chicago is one of the most adapted plays in history. It was turned into a silent Cecil B. DeMille film in 1927, then a comedic feature in 1942 with Ginger Rogers starring as Roxy Hart. In 1975, legendary Bob Fosse transformed the sensational story into a musical that you may remember from our 100th episode. I mentioned that Chicago the Musical totally tanked in 1975 because society at the time just couldn't get on board with a show about people becoming famous for being murderers. But when the show was revived on Broadway in 1996, O.J. and the Menendez brothers had already happened, so theatergoers ate that shit up. Chicago has gone on to become one of the longest-running shows in Broadway history. And in 2002, Hollywood came calling again, adapting Fosse's seminal musical, which was directed in his cinematic debut by revered choreography and stage veteran Rob Marshall. Chicago was a massive hit with critics and audiences alike, winning six Academy Awards, including Best Picture, and grossing upwards of $300 million at the global box office. And the thing is, if Beulah Annan was after stardom, she fucking got it. And that is the story of Beulah Annan, the real Roxy Hart.
1: Holy fucking shit. Girl,
0: that was so good. Thank you. That was wild. Yeah. So I've definitely been listening to the Chicago soundtrack for like the last three days because it's amazing. I can't comment on my feelings of the movie because of the fucking sag strike, but given all the Academy Awards it's won, you could probably extrapolate how I feel about it because it's very successful.
1: Yeah, I think it's safe, safe assumption. Yes,
0: it's a safe assumption. The cojones on this woman, like what? Girl, and they got away with it. Yeah. They totally fucking got away with it. I mean, uh... I can't say I wouldn't have done the same. But women are like dumb and fragile and like, yeah, whatever. Uh, Girl. All right. It's it's fucked up, but there's like a level of respect there that I have that I'm like,
1: I I know I feel really bad saying that, but I that's kind of all I'm thinking where I was like, it's fucked up and I'm like not supporting murder, but like I'm like kind of
0: impressed a little bit. Oh, also, I forgot to mention uh, she never had a baby at any point. That was bullshit. It was just
1: She just wanted to be in the fucking papers. I had a feeling, but I forgot to ask it
0: during your story yeah no you know no she made that shit up to be to add to the to the the shit it was just a publicity pregnancy I got it yeah (laughs) publicity pregnancy I'm fucking obsessed with you love and alliteration yeah girl girl I love it that was so good thank you for that story thank you I I know I like doubled up I I theater theater doubled it up but I was trying to do another story and it ended up not being a crime story and I was like fuck (laughs) And I kept this one in my back pocket. (laughs) I really enjoyed it. I didn't even really pick up on the double theater thing, but, you know, I'm a theater kid. What can I say? Yeah. You're a woman of culture. (laughs) Sure. Let's go with that. Thank you so much for your story. Of course. Love spooked. I mean, wild shit across the board. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, I just, it's gonna, it's gonna fuck me up. I mean, I'm already fucked up by the story. Realistically, most of your stories. (laughs) I have that effect on people, Monique. I'm sorry. I mean, are you though? I don't think so. I don't think you're sorry. <laughs> I'm not really that sorry. No, I'm like smiling as I say it in like glee. Yeah, no, yeah. Which I don't. I didn't tell you the other day. I went to the to the bar that one of the bars that I go to, and Sam, who I've mentioned on the podcast, hey girl, how you doing? I walk in, and Billy Joel's Uptown Girl is playing, and she was like, "Girl, I had to. What the fuck was that episode?" And I'm like, "I know." So fucking Billy Joel. Yes.
1: <laughs> again, I will never get over it. I will never listen to a Billy Joel song again and not think of that. It's insane.
0: Also, I looked her up, uh, not hot, emphatically not hot. I have no idea why she got away with this. Yes. I saw like the one picture
1: after the fact, and then I was like, oh, yeah, no. She was like half blocked by somebody else, though. And I was like, maybe yeah. it's
0: bad lighting or something. Yeah. And that was probably doing her a favor. Like, sorry, but like, not hot. So I don't, I don't know why. She was not a Beulah or a Belva. No. Yeah, and Instagram is just, like, refusing to, to work for me. I, I don't know what that's about. So, uh, <laughs> but, because I'm trying to post shit, and it's like, no, it's not loading. So I don't know if this is, like, a Threads thing or what the fuck, but, uh, like, a Threads takeover. Oh, I have no idea. I don't know. I don't understand technology. I just blame Mercury for everything. I mean, she's she's been on a tear, girl. Yeah. As we know. Yeah, because I was trying to post pictures of how not hot she was. And uh, it's (laughs) Instagram's like not letting me. But uh, I'm going to do it. I'm very determined to do that. So you guys can see. You can see for yourselves. But we do have one last announcement. We're actually going to be taking the next two weeks off to just take a little bit of break and then like get shit together with a podcast. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, even though we're going to be taking stuff off we're not really taking things off because that's just how that goes (laughs) but we will re-release some of our favorite episodes in that time so so you can just take a stroll down memory lane or if you've not heard all the episodes then it might be a a new one for you so yeah thank you guys so much for everything and for listening this is another fucking horror podcast i'm monique sanchez and i'm amy traden you can find me on the gram at pinupgirlmo. You can find me at lobotomy, and that's the bot, period, Amy. Also, go on the show's gram because uh, I'm, I'm really determined to make this Instagram bullshit work. Uh, you can find the show at another fucking horror podcast. Every six episode, we do a true listener tales episode where we read your true crazy stories. So if you got one or you want to say hi, you can email us at another fucking horror podcast at gmail.com with a period instead of the you and fucking. Thanks so much for everything, guys. We're so obsessed with you and we'll see you in two weeks. Keep it cute. Keep it creepy. Bye.